0: Well, Pastor Tony, I want to say thank you, my friend, for always being generous with your pulpit when I'm passing through town. I appreciate so very much the opportunity to come and and, uh, share with you guys some of the things that God is doing in our work in the northeast of Brazil, but also, first and foremost, just to preach the Word of God. It is uh, good to be able to do that in front of the home crowd and it's, uh, it is a family reunion for us every time we come home because, of course, you know that we owe so much to you. I mean, Michael Memorial has got their print on every facet of my life and ministry. You know that it was on May 6th of 1990 that uh, the Lord spoke to us and called us to uh, vocational ministry right here at Michael Memorial, and uh, because of, of, the, of the grounding and because of the discipleship process and because you had so uh, been a part of forming our faith walk until when we went off to college and seminary, we weren't uh, pulled astray like so many guys that I saw were in seminary. Uh, seminary is the easiest place in the world, backslide. Did you know that? Uh, and guys that go there that didn't have a good church family and were not grounded, it's a, it's a real good place to get off the beaten path and and again, uh, we attribute that to to what you guys had invested in our life while we were here. Uh, then we got out and and pastored and of course you ordained us. And I feel like I'm always accountable to you because your name is on my ordination paper. So uh, all you have to do is pull the paper anytime you can pull the plug and just kill me dead in the water. And I appreciate the fact that you've been gracious and not done that. And then in 2007, when God called us away from our church in uh, uh, Hilliard, Florida, into uh, in, into missions work in the northeast of Brazil, you guys again stepped up and you embraced uh, what it was that we were doing. And and not only are you helping us finance this uh, uh, this kingdom work in the northeast, but you have also given us your hand. And you have partnered with the church in the northeast of Brazil. And I'm just amazed at what God is doing in your church partnership. Uh, when I hear Pastor Tony talk, it reminds me of, of myself all over again because it is exciting, it's invigorating, isn't it, Steve? And uh, some of you guys that have been down there, you, you know exactly what it means to be bitten by the mission bug. And then Pastor Tony and I are planning to be there uh, the 1st of November and we're going to explore some ramifications of your partnership and taking it to another level kind of transitioning it to a place where none of our partnerships have ever gone. So we expect Michael Memorial to be the leader and, and is going to be the model and is going to be the flagship for what it means to have a productive, uh, a fruitful church partnership uh, in the northeast of Brazil. So I want to thank you for all of that. Now you know uh, because these folk that go down, your missionaries that you send, Keep you informed of some of the things that they're encountering and some of the things that they're seeing. But let me bring you in a few things that, that goes on uh, while you don't have a team there. So if we can pull up some pictures, I'm going to show you a few things. Heather and I have uh, two, sometimes three, depends on the way they divide up, church planning teams of Brazilians that we have trained in our hometown of Couturupu. And every Sunday, those two or three teams will get on motorcycles and bicycles and on foot, and they'll spread out through the jungle, and their mission is to do two things. is to establish preaching points and congregations and places where the gospel and where there never has been a church. And they are out there and and where they have them established, they have leaders for Bible studies and they're leading Bible studies on Sunday mornings and going to various and sundry places. And uh, one Sunday morning, they were going out and I, I pulled back into Kudurupu uh, last uh, May and they meet me at the bus station and say, Pastor, you got to go with us to this new place where we've established a congregation. And they were just brimming. I said, well, tell me about it. They said, we were going out. To one of the Kelumbo's. You know the Kelumbo's are the unengaged people group that we are engaging with the gospel. And they were headed out to a key and uh, to a, a, one of those tribal villages. And one of their motorcycles broke down. So they stopped and they began to work on that motorcycle. And they noticed some foot traffic around the area. And they said, well, let's see what's going on here. So they began to investigate and they found that there was a community of people there. And they began to minister to those people over a a period of weeks and began to preach the gospel. And lo and behold, there was a remarkable response to the gospel in this place uh, where the Brazilians said they just happened to accidentally land. And this is the church that they established. That's where they meet to worship every Sunday, under two mango trees. Now, I wonder sometimes if that's not how God intends it. I mean, stop and think about it. They don't have a building note. They don't have an insurance premium. They don't have electric bills. Uh, they don't have have to have anybody vacuum it up. They just show up and it's ready to go. But here's where they have have church. Uh, let me sh- uh, pull up one more of those photos and I'll take you right into the main part of their sanctuary. Uh, uh, here they are. And, of course, there's my motorcycle. I just drove right into the middle of the church like I had good sense, huh? Uh, but let me tell you the story about this place now. When, when they went in and began to preach the gospel and they had such a remarkable response up front until the the the, the, the chief there in that place uh, put a stop to it. And he told him, he said, I, I don't want these believers coming back. They're creating too much of a disturbance here in the community. Uh, you people are going off and you're singing and doing whatever you do under those two mango trees when you ought to be working. So I'm putting an end to that. But guess what? one of the first people who came to faith in Christ in this village was the chief's son. And he went to his father and he said, Dad, you can't stop this. This is doing too much good for us. It is it is, it is helping us understand the purpose of God for our life. And people are becoming free from uh, the witchcraft and sorcery of the witch doctrine. Men who have been hooked on Brazilian moonshine are getting off of it and they're becoming good family men. And his daddy said, Well, son... I still don't like it, but at your word, I'm going to let it go on. And now, there's no telling how many folks they had this morning worshipping under those two mango trees. Okay, next slide. Here is the chief's son. When I got there, he was way out in this lake. He was soaking uh, mangioka to make farinha. They have to let that stuff soak for about four days in water. And he was out there... And when we arrived, some of our, our team leaders went up and they hollered out at him and said, Pastor Richie is here. So he comes running out of that lake and he came at me so quick, I, I didn't know if I should step back or, or what he was going to do, but he came up to me wet and he just grabbed me and hugged me. And he said, Pastor, I want to thank you. We've never met before, but I owe you a big thank, me and my people. He said, I thank you for training these men and women. They've talked about you. And if it was not for you training them, they would have never come and they would have never brought the gospel. And my life would have never been transformed. Some of my friends and my family would have never met Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you. And brother, I just stood there with Holy Spirit goosebumps just running all up and down me. You see, that's enough right there to keep you going. And then this is what he said. He said, now, I know when you get back to the U.S. you're going to be speaking to some people there in U.S. churches and I want you to give them a message from me. His name is Duval. Duval said, I want you to tell them that we are honored to be a part of the family of God with them. And I want you to tell them that we are going to take very seriously our responsibility to take this life-changing message of Jesus Christ to the next village and the next one and the next one. And I thought, my goodness, I just stood there in amazement. Here's a guy that just six months ago did not even know the name of Jesus Christ and he's talking to me like a seminary missions professor. And I wanted to say, man, where'd you learn this stuff? And it's obvious. You know, the Spirit of God's just got him on the fast track to maturity out there. Okay, brothers, next slide. While I was there, he, uh, we could not leave. He said, you can't leave until you, you share a passage of Scripture with us. So I went and sat down in front of his house there. And you can see what his house consists of behind me. And I was sitting down uh, preaching to them from Philippians chapter 1. This little monkey came up and he was just crawling all over me. I mean, he was weaving in and out of my legs, going around behind my back, around my neck, under my hat. He was going everywhere. I'm convinced you can't do anything in here tonight to distract me from preaching. <laughs> if, you <can> try, <laughs> if you can preach with a monkey under your hat, and guess what? None of the Brazilians laughed. They were riveted to me. Oh, it's normal to have a monkey crawl all over the preacher, I guess, you know. Uh, but anyway, when when I got done with my message, I said, now bring that little dude back up here. So they brought the monkey in a bottle, and I sat there and, and had a good time with that monkey. Uh, they rescued him from a dog. A dog caught him and was about to eat him, and they rescued him, and the dog already killed his mama. And anyway, now, now he's got a new family. Okay, uh, what do we got next, brother? Uh, listen, uh, over the past uh, ten months, God has tripled the scope of our ministry in the northeast of Brazil. We could see this happening uh, last year and we knew that we had to do something because we just weren't in a place to finance tripling our ministry in one year. And lo and behold, God opened the door for me to serve as a transitional pastor in northeast Florida for about eight months. And while we were there at that church, um, we looked at our mission board and said, take us off of our mission salary. And let's put all of that toward our mission expansion in Brazil. And God used it to that extent. And because of that reason, we now have three pastoral training sites in Brazil. And we have 110 students. And here we are in one of our our training sessions with... Uh, a group of students. This one happens to be in my hometown. It's the first one we've done there since 2008. But this is in Kudurupu. And uh, these students, when we are through with them, when they graduate in 2012, uh, they will be cleared to serve as pastors. They will be accepted by the Pastors Conference in the state. They can be ordained. And you know what that means for church planning out there. And they'll also be eligible. They'll have the credentials to serve with the Brazilian Home Mission Board. We already have some guys that have been trained through our uh, training program and they are coming right back out and going way out. I mean, farther than we've been. Pastor Tony and I have our eye on one of these guys. I mean, he is out there. Listen to me. He's got to put his motorcycle in a canoe. And they have to paddle the canoe for about 45 minutes just to get where he can ride the motorcycle for another six hours. He's out there. And, and this is how God is mobilizing some of those guys. Okay, uh, next slide is... Well, here's one of them. There's a lot of a lot of praying going on during this time because here's test test time. We uh, we don't just hand these guys a certificate; they've got to earn it. So there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth during test time. And uh, here's one of our pastoral students taking a, a hermeneutics or Bible interpretation exam, and uh, they've got their book on their lap and their Bible on their lap. I let them use their Bible, but they can't use their book, and boy, they cry over that. But no? Uh, okay, what do we got next there, brother? Alright, brings us to our order of business tonight. That's that's kind of where we've been and what we've been doing. Heather and I hit the road again on the 12th of September and we'll be back down there for a good long while and no telling what the Lord will do and we want you to pray for us as, as we're down there. It's good to know that we've got people like you back here holding the rope while we're dangling off in the darkness of, of the jungle where witch doctors and demons roam. Amen? Notice Revelation chapter number 2 is where we are. Uh, you know, since since uh, my life has been transformed again by God's Word, as we have been missionaries, and I've been seeing the Bible in a new light, and I've always understood that the Bible is first and foremost a book about God. It's not a book about me. It's not so much a book about God's plan for me. It's a book about God. I mean, if it were not for God's self-disclosure of Himself in the Bible, we would know nothing of Him. So the Bible is first and foremost a book about God, and therefore it's a worship book, and that's the first business of the local church, to worship and glorify the great God of heaven. But very closely behind that, I think I can say that the book, the Bible is a missions book. And when you read the Bible, you find that it has been the heart of God from Genesis to Revelation... "...that all the peoples of the earth might know Him." And when you really pick up on the missiological lingo and language and verbiage of the Bible, you begin to see that at every turn and almost in every place and on every page. But unfortunately, in in our day and age, sometimes we just read right by something that has high missiological significance. And I've been studying these seven churches in the book of Revelation, and I've been studying them from a missiological perspective. And I have found that four of these seven churches have high missiological implications as Jesus speaks to them. And, and, and if the four are explicit, uh, the other three certainly have missiological implications buried within them. And let me just show you some of this. Let me show you the missiological implications in at least four of them. Look with me there in Revelation chapter 2 in verse number 5. The first missiological, uh, missiological significant statement is when Jesus said, "...or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand." Then look with me down to the message of the church at Pergamum. He says this in verse 16, "...therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly." and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Highly missiological. Now fall down with me to verse 26, the message of Thyatira. You can pick this one out because it's a little more readily noticeable. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over whom? The nations, that word is always, every time you see it, think missions. Now look with me again uh, here in uh, the message to Philadelphia in chapter 3 and verse number 8. I know your deeds, behold I have put before you an open door. Another missiological reference here to the church at Philadelphia. And I've been, been thinking and putting all this together and think, man, this is going to be what I'm going to share with my family and friends at Michael Memorial Baptist Church. And as I began to study it, I realized, no, for me to do that, would need I would need about four or five hours. So I decided just to settle on Revelation chapter 2, the message to the church at Ephesus. So now, after that introduction, let's find ourselves in... Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 1. Notice what it is that Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus write The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now, notice he's already give us the the, the symbolic understanding of the stars and of the lampstands in the final verse of chapter 1. Of course, the stars are the messengers, the pastors, and the lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Now, look with me in verse number 2. He says, "I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseve- and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen" And repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise, of God. Well, the church at Ephesus. I call this church a church that is stuck on fast forward with a fatal flaw. I mean, they were doing a lot of things, but yet they had something going on that Jesus said was going to be fatal if they didn't pay attention to it. So I want you to look with me and let's see exactly what it is that Christ has to say to a church like this. That is on fast forward, going a hundred miles an hour, but yet has a fatal structural flaw. Notice what it is that Jesus says to this church. He, he first says to this church, or to this church, Christ has a word of commendation for their labor. Look, he has, he has a word of commendation for their labor. Notice with me again in verse number two. He says, I know your deeds and your toil. What is He saying to them? The word of commendation that He has for them first is this. He says that they were unafraid of hard toil. Unafraid of hard toil. Now, look with me again. He says, I know your ergos." You, you understand that Greek word from, we, we use it a lot now, something that's ergonomically comfortable or, or ergonomically shaped. It, it, it translates into work. But he goes beyond that. He says, you know, it's not just work that you are doing, but he says it's kopos, it's toil. It means work that is laboriously agonizing. It means hard and anguishing toil. And this is what Jesus commends this church for. He says, man, y'all are not afraid of work. Now, I don't know about you, but that just kind of brings a a, a smile to my face to know that Jesus does not commend a couch potato work ethic, but He expects His people to work. I mean, you know, you've always heard, I, I know of people that are not afraid of work. They'll lay down and sleep right beside it. They're not scared of it. And and, you know, this is refreshing for us to hear because in our society, listen to me, where everybody wins a trophy, no matter what type of effort you put in, you still get the same reward as those who put in ultimate and maximum effort. In our society, where entitlement programs has caused a generation of people to think they can sit and do nothing and be rewarded for it, just like somebody who puts in an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, it's good to know that our Lord and Savior still commends and expects His people to roll up their sleeves and get down to the hard, laborious task of ministry and taking the gospel all around this planet. And I think He would commend you, church, because you have put your hand to the plow. And you're going places that it takes big boys to get to. And big girls to get to because it's not comfortable. And I think Jesus would extend that commendation to you. Notice what else He gives them a commendation for. Not only does He say they were unafraid of hard toil, but He says that they could not tolerate evil men. My goodness, how politically incorrect are we getting now? You see, not only are we not going to reward people who refuse to work, but now we're not going to tolerate evil men. I'm telling you, Jesus just wouldn't fit in to Washington, D.C. today, would He? Huh? I mean, you know you got to be tolerant, and you got to embrace everything and everybody. But Jesus says here, He says, You cannot tolerate, look with me in verse number 2, evil men. And he goes beyond that in verse number 6 and says, You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Boy, I'm telling you, there are some things that the church must stand against. I mean, there's a whole lot that we are for, but there's some things that we must stand against. And Jesus says to this church, listen, you've not lost your backbone. You're not afraid to stand up and call heresy heresy. You see, he's not talking here about hating lost people. He's talking about hating those and and hating the work of those who, who maliciously subvert the gospel of Jesus Christ into something that's powerless and cannot save nor transform anybody. He says you hate that. You cannot tolerate evil men. And guess what? He didn't say in the church y'all ought to be more understanding and y'all ought to be more accepting of those who don't believe like you do. No, he said, I commend you for this because you cannot tolerate evil men. Walk through this with me a little farther. Look what else he says in verse number 2. And he says, you have put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. What else does he commend them for? Because they had tested false preachers. They tested them. I mean, look what he says. He said, those who call themselves apostles. You know, there's a lot of folks today that call themselves preachers. Let me ask you a question. How do you know when somebody who stands behind a pulpit and even holds God's Word up in the air, how do you know when somebody's a preacher and somebody's a false prophet? You know, there are folks who even read from this sacred book, but they twist it to fit their own purposes. And I'm telling you, people by the droves are being washed away into some watered down, heretical version of the gospel that doesn't have power to change anybody. How do you test them? How do you know? where there's good principles and there's good solid ways to do this. And I want to tell you something. This church wasn't one just to sit back and, expe- and, and accept whatever it was that came from some silver-tongued preacher who stood up and called himself an apostle. The Bible says, no, sir, they put to the test. And Jesus commends them because He says, you found them to be false. Notice what else He commends this church for. He commends them not only because they had tested false preachers, but verse number 3 says this, Look, and you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He commended them because they had persevered through hard times. They would persevered through hard times. You see, I I don't think Jesus has an appetite for folk pulling up lame before the finish line and saying, You know, it's just been so tough, i just got to have a break. I just got to quit. I I, I don't think he understands that at all. As a matter of fact, this is what he said in the Gospels. He said, he who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Now listen to me, he wasn't propagating some types of work salvation. What he was simply saying is, I am so confident that what I do in a person's life, when I move in and invade and transform their life and their world, that they'll not know the meaning of the word quit. And my people will persevere through hell and high water because they will not quit nor give up nor lay down on the job. So he's saying, you want to know who's really been born again? Just look around and see who it is that's hanging in there, even through hard times. Man, these were tough times for those folks. We don't know what tough times are, and we got folks pulling up with blisters on their feet. They were in tough times. And Jesus said, I commend you because you have persevered. And in doing so, you're demonstrating just exactly how transforming The gospel is in the life of a person who's accepted it. I'm getting to the missiological part, but I figured I just might as well systematically go step by step until I came to it. What do you think? Notice with me what else Christ says to this church. To this church that's on fast forward with a fatal flaw, Jesus says this. To this church, Christ shows the way to make corrections in their love. You see, He gave them a commendation for their labor, But now here in verses 4 and 5, He's going to show them how to make corrections in their love. You see, what was the fatal flaw? Oh, they were busy. They had a lot of oars in the water and a lot of irons in the fire. Friend, you understand how that is. I mean, we live in a fast-paced society, do we not? I mean, we live in a society where if you can't multitask and use 4G high-speed internet, and get instant gratification for most of what we do, then you just get left behind. That's all there is to it. heard a comedian the other day said, he put instant coffee in a microwave oven and actually went back in time. That's the society that we live in. I mean, we're, we're, we are on fast forward, just like these folks down in Ephesus. But listen, if we are going this fast, and guess what? It's commendable. Jesus commends them for that. He doesn't condemn. He commends for all of their effort, for their hard work, and for being so, uh, so tenacious in their ministry. But if there is a fatal flaw, then we're gonna pile up somewhere. I mean, when you're going this fast, it's like running down the interstate at breakneck speed on ball tires. Hey, it's like the space shuttle. Coming back into the earth's atmosphere at about 22,000 miles an hour and having just one of its thousand heat tiles missing. You know what takes place. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I need to show you how to make a correction and make a correction in something that is of ultimate importance. He says, you see, I've not primarily called you to be busy. Lord, have mercy. Do you know we live in a society that worships busyness? I mean, we we tend tend to link our significance, our value, and our importance to how full our day planner or agenda is. And if I don't have a whole lot to do today, it must mean that I'm not very important. But friends, listen to me. You can be busy, but if you miss this, then you're going to pile up somewhere. It's a fatal flaw, and you're headed headlong for a crash. And Jesus said, I've not called you primarily to be busy. I've called you primarily to do something else, and that's to love me with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your soul. You see, that's the priority. Why? Why? Because remember, this book is a book that first and foremost reveals to us the grand God, Creator of heaven and earth. And any time we see him, what is the response of his people? I tell you what it is is to worship him, to see him high and lifted up, who he as who he really is. It'll elicit a worship response every time. And that's what the book does. It reveals him to us. Now notice what it is that Christ talks about as he gets to their fatal flaw. Notice what it is he says in verse number. In verse, uh, uh, let's see, it's in verse number four. He says, "But I have this against you: you have left your first love. You've left your first love." Now just stay with me. We're going to bring these missiological implications right into this thing. But look, what what was their fatal flaw? Somehow in all of their busyness and doing everything that they were doing for God, somehow or another they had left the best part. They had left their first love. Now, notice what it is that he says that they need to do in order to correct this. What he says in verse number 4, or in verse number 5, he says, Remember from where you have fallen. First thing we've got to do to correct this is remember from where you have fallen. Now, what is it that we need to remember? Well, obviously we need to remember how it was in the beginning. We need to know some of the things that we did in those early days when we weren't so caught up with everything else, but we were just infatuated with the newfound presence of the God of heaven living in our hearts. And what a difference that made. And I think there are some other things that Come on, right in with that. Notice what it is I think that we can say about this type of love that he calls us back to. I think there are three things that that the Bible would endorse about this type of first love that he calls his people back to. I think the first thing we can say about this love is this. Is that this type of love is where our pleasure is located. It's where our pleasure is located. Now stay with me here for a little while. You see, I think when, when we talk about loving God, that agape type of love that the Spirit of God sheds abroad in our hearts, I think we have this concept. I think we have the Job concept. You remember what Job said? It's almost as if Job stood with his teeth clenched and with his hands wrapped tightly and he said, Though he kill me, yet will I love Him. And you know, there is that element to agape love that I don't like this, but I'm going to do it no matter what. But can I say to you that there's something there's something so much bigger to agape love than that. You see, there is times when we just have to hang on tenaciously because we don't understand some things and it's a settled commitment that yes, I'm going to love because that's what God's called me to do. And I've made a commitment and I'm going to love. But I want to tell you, there's an element of pleasure to be found in agape love. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know, we, we throw it around loosely sometimes about things that we love. When folks say, I love this or I love that, it's not something you've got to force them to do. It's not something you've got to make them to do. Listen, I love my bride. Therefore, you don't have to force me to go home at night. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to force me to spend time with her. Why? Cause she is where my pleasure is located. Hey, you know what I mean? Baptists, Baptist have fellowships and I know some of you can make a knockdown dessert. And you don't have to make yourself love it. Huh? I mean, my mama, when I got home, she had a four layer, you know what them four layer desserts? Woo! My goodness! She's trying to fat me up because so I'll lose it over the course of the next three months in Brazil. But my goodness, those things are good. I love those things. Listen, I don't have to force myself to eat them. You know what I'm saying? I've got to force myself to push back. You see, that's what this type of love has entailed within it. It's where our pleasure is. And if we love God, man, it'll be our pleasure just sit in His presence and soak up His glory. The psalmist said this, the psalmist said, for in thy presence is fullness of joy and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, the type of love that He's calling them back to and calling us back to is a type of love that is where our pleasure is located. But there's something else here. Not only is that type of love where our pleasure is located, but I think the Bible would also tell us that that type of love is where the purpose of God is located. It's where God's purpose for our life is located. Hey, isn't that what God saved us for? It really is. I mean, we're we're all worried and consumed about discovering the reason why God saved us and left us here on this planet. I can clear all that up for you tonight. Hey, God didn't leave you here. To primarily be a preacher, to be a missionary, to be a deacon, to be a Sunday school teacher, to be an evangelist? No, sir. That's an overflow out of your love. You see, he left us here so we can just love him. That's what we're here for. That's why he saved us, huh? I mean, it, it really is. Uh, again, he said, this is the greatest commandment. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So this type of love that He's calling us back to is where the purpose of God is located for my life. And boy, I will tell you something. I need a wake-up call every now and then. Because, I mean, you can just tell that I get to running so fast sometimes I get ahead of myself. And I've got to be reminded that God didn't call me to busyness. God called me into a relationship with Him. Into a relationship... That has my pleasure located there. And it has God's purpose located there. But let me give you one more thing. This type of love is where God's promises are located. It's where God's promises are located. Now, you know this, but I'm gonna walk you through it anyway, because we need to be reminded of it every now and then. I'm telling you the greatest promises in the Bible are not given to those who are busy. But it's given to those who love God. And so many times, I don't know about you, but I read this New Testament and I say, God, I don't know what's going on with me, but what I see is normal Christianity and the pages of the book are not coming to fruition in my life. What's going on? And it's a wake-up call to me and to you. Notice with me what the Bible says. I want to give you, I want to walk through just a few of these grand promises with you. Would you, would you find your place with me in the book of Romans? Be ready now to fan those pages because we're going to go quick because we got to run. Romans chapter number eight. You know it by heart, but I want you to see it in black and white. Look what it is that the Bible says in Romans chapter eight and verse number 28. Oh man, one of the greatest promises in all of God's word. And look who it's given to and we know that god causes all things to work together for good to those who what to those who love god who is the recipient whose mailing address is stamped on that promise i'm telling you who it is it's those who love god with the type of love that jesus is calling his church back to now look with me again just turn over a few books to the book of first corinthians First Corinthians and I think we're gonna find, gonna end in chapter two. Yes, we are. Gonna land in chapter number two. 1 Corinthians chapter two and verse number nine. Look what Paul says as he quotes the Old Testament. He says this, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for who? Those Who love Him? Who is heaven prepared for today? Those who walk down the aisle, make a half-hearted commitment, or rush through the baptistry, and we can't burn the woods and find them six months later? No, sir. It's for those who are in a tenacious love relationship with God, who wouldn't let it go for anything, because that's where their pleasure is. That's where God's purposes are located. And that's where God's promises come to fruition in our life. One more. Turn with me to the book of James. Uh, and again, I'm skipping over so many, but for the sake of time, Brother Tony told me on Sunday nights he usually fills up an 80 minute CD. So I'm still under, I'm still under the clock here, ain't I? I'm still, still in good shape, Brother Tony. Look with me. James chapter 1 verse number 12. Look what the Bible says. I'm telling you this type of love is where God's promises are located. Look with me in verse number 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those half-hearted folks who refuse to serve him in ministry. No, sir, that's not what he says. He's talking to the Sunday night crowd here, folks. I mean, he is. Look what he says again. He's promised it to those who love him. You see, the promises of God, to whom are they given? To those who love him with the type of love that Jesus is calling his people back to look with me again in the book of James this one is so close I just can't help but go there look with me in chapter 2 verse number 5 he says this James says listen my beloved brethren did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him are you beginning to get the picture we could spend copious amounts of time laboring at the task of demonstrating that the promises of God are given to those who love Him with this type of love that Jesus Christ is calling His church back to. Now watch this. You know, sometimes you might find yourself where I am every now and then. I get so busy and I get so crowded with my time and so stressed out over the hard toil of ministry until it's almost as if there's an alarm that goes off in the heart of the believers. God puts it there. It's that alarm that says, God, I'm not enjoying this anymore. God, I'd rather be the greeter down at Walmart than be doing this right now. You ever been there? Huh? I'm telling you. Have you ever been there where you say, God... I don't know what's going on, but I read your book and there's some grand promises in there. And there hadn't been one even run through my neighborhood in the past six months. And you know what that is? That's a warning light going off in the cockpit saying, Son, slow down. You're stuck on fast forward with a fatal flaw that's going to pile you up in the ditch if you don't listen to this warning light. Notice what else... Jesus says to this church about making corrections. He tells them, number one, to remember from where they've fallen. Number two, in verse number five, look what he says. He says, and repent, and repent. So what is the first thing we do? We remember what type of love it was that we were in in the beginning. Number two, we repent from wherever we are. We make a U-turn and we get back there immediately, if not sooner. And then look what else he says. He shows them one more way to make corrections. He says in verse 5, he says, remember, he says, repent, and he says, return to your first works. Look what he says. He says, do the deeds you did at first. Now, interesting here, I want you to see something. Jesus didn't say, you know, you've got this issue going on, and what I want you to do is just tell me you love me. Now, that's not what he said. You know why he didn't say that? Because Jesus understood that it was possible. As a matter of fact, He described some people in His earthly ministry like this. He said, these are people who honor me with their lips, but yet their heart is far from me. And He tells them, He says, get back to doing what you did at first. Do those first deeds. Now, here's something that just rocked my world when I saw it. When I began to ponder it, I thought, this can't be true, Brother Tony, because it's so radical. Man, I love it. This book is radical. You understand? And this is what it was. It rocked my world. And I, if you don't believe me, when you get home tonight, I hope you're up to 2 and 3 o'clock searching the Scripture to see if it's true. When you read the Gospels, you won't find one place where Jesus looked at one person in the eye and said, I love you. Hello? See, it's rocking your world like it did mine. You'll be hard-pressed to find one person in the New Testament at whom Jesus Christ looked and He said, I love you. Now, I know where you're going. You're saying, wait a minute, Brother Richie. We're going to test you and find you to be a false preacher if you don't hurry up and get out of this hole. Because you're telling me that Jesus don't love me? That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you He never looked at anybody and said, I love you. But oh yes, He loves the Bible says, "No man has greater love, uh, no man has greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends." For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have vida eterna, everlasting life. You know why Jesus didn't have to look at anybody and tell them that he loved them? Exactly right, brother, because he demonstrated it. He said, what I do speaks louder than what I can say. And I think that's what he's saying to his church. He's saying, church, it really don't matter how high we jump. It matters how straight we walk. Even if we have to borrow a cliche, huh? He says, if you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, do the deeds that you did at first. And that's what he's calling his church back to. Now, Let me get to the missiological implications. We see to this church that Christ has a word of commendation for their labor. We see to this church Christ shows them how to make corrections in their love. But notice the last thing, and I close, to this church, Christ gives a warning of the consequences to those who will listen. Now, I think He's given us a pretty good definition of the church right here. It may not have been His primary purpose, but I want you to look with me at what He says in verse number 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to me. This is what he's saying. He's saying that the church is, is not just those who are in attendance, but the church is those who pay attention. Those who hear. That word hear means to hear with the intent to obey. And he says those who hear, those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to Ephesus, but to all of the other six of these churches as well. Now, notice what the fatal flaw is. I've got to point this out before I show you how serious the consequences are that he gives them. Look what he says in verse number 5. He, says, uh, he tells them that their fatal flaw is because they left their first love. But now look what he says he's going to do in verse number 5. He says, repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Now, let me see if I can find something up here I can use. I I believe I've got the perfect thing right here. Now, let me show you what he's saying. He's saying here, and we've already seen in chapter number 1, that the lampstands represent the seven churches. Listen to me. The lampstand is not the light. The lampstand simply elevates the light. You see, it's the purpose of Jesus Christ to have the glorious light of the gospel high and lifted up. He himself said, no man lights a lamp and then hides it under a bushel, but he elevates it so that it will give light to everyone who sees. Now look what it is he says he'll do. If this is the church, the church is not the light, but the lampstand lifts the light. This is what Jesus says he's going to do. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place. Now, look what he's doing here. This is what he's saying. He's saying either you're going to repent or there's going to be radical action taken by the Lord. And you know what the radical action is? He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lampstand. Now, watch me. Make certain of this. He didn't say I'm going to come and extinguish the light. It's not a a matter of taking salvation away. It's simply a matter of taking the lampstand away. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to that church that does not love me, he said, I'm going to so put the light down that nobody can see you. He says, because quite honestly, I don't want anybody to know that you're associated with me. You're a bad testimony. You're a liability to my name. And I just assume nobody know that you exist. And ladies and gentlemen, infeliz menchi, sadly, there are churches all over the United States of America, where people in their own Jerusalem are walking right by them as if they don't even exist. Let alone in their Judea, in their Samaria, and in their uttermost parts of the earth. Why is that? I'm telling you, it just may be because Christ came, because their refusal to refusal to repent, and because their hearts grown so cold, and they're not in love anymore with the Lord of Life. And Jesus said, "Hey, I'm taking your lampstand." because I don't want anybody to know that you belong to me because you're kind of an embarrassment right now. Because you see, my church is supposed to be infused with world-changing power because you have the gospel of which you should not be ashamed because it's the power of God to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek. And Jesus says, I'm going to take it down. heard Charles Stanley say something years ago, and the first time I heard him say it, I thought, you know, it sounds like something an arrogant preacher of a megachurch would say. But then I got to thinking about it years on, Brother Tony, and I thought, God forgive me, Charles Stanley was right. This is what he said. He said, sometimes I think the best thing that could happen to a lot of Southern Baptist churches in the United States of America that think they exist for the purpose of having an orchestrated fight every week when they get together. He said the best thing that could happen is that they close their doors because they're a bad and horrible testimony to the saving grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I think that's what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, I am going to take your lampstand down because I don't want anybody to see you. And man, how does that show up? Let me tell you how it shows up. It shows up when the baptistry gets so much dust in it, you could plant a row of collard greens in it. Because nobody's coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It shows up when there hadn't been a, a new face walk into the sanctuary in so long that when they walk in, nobody knows how to treat them as a first time guest because he so let the lamp stand down. But here's the missiological implications. Are you ready? I think the opposite can be true. I think this is what's happening at Michael Memorial Baptist Church. You see? He's not taking the lampstand down, but because you have a heart that's hot and filled with the love of Christ. That's where your pleasure is. That's where God's purposes are located and you've latched on to those. That's where God's promises are being worked out in this congregation and in the life of this body on a daily basis. Until Jesus says, that's the type of church that I will bear in my name all around this planet. So He takes that lampstand and He says, it's not going down, Daddy. It's going up because you've got something worth sharing. You've got the life-changing message and it's evident within your congregation and we're going to put it up where all the world can see it. That's what he's doing at Michael Memorial Baptist Church. Listen, who is it that's qualified? Who is it that Jesus will use to reach this world for the glory of Christ? I tell you who it is. It's not the church that has the most resources. It's not the church that has the smartest people. It's not the church with the biggest congregation. But it's the church that has the hardest and uh, the hottest heart for God of anybody else. And listen to me. I can be a church of ten. Or it can be a church of 10,000. doesn't matter to him. But I'm telling you, he'll use the church that loves him like nothing else. That's what God's doing at Michael Memorial. You've experienced it, and you can never go back. Nothing else will ever do. And Jesus says to this church here, he says, I'm giving you a warning of the consequences to those who will listen. If you don't listen, there will be radical action taken by the Lord. I'm going to take your lampstand out of his place. But look at the final thing, and I'm done here. He says, there will either be radical action taken by the Lord, or there will be open access to life. Look what he says here. He says in verse number 7, to him who overcomes, there's that overcoming, persevering thing again. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, there's two ways we can go with this. We can go and say, you know what he's talking about here is heaven. In the sweet by and by, there in glory, he's going to let us eat freely of the tree of life. But I think there's something else that he gives in the missiological implications to that church that has a heart hot for God. You know what I think he's saying? We find it in the, entom- in the etymology of the word in the original language. The word paradise it comes from two words put together, peridico. You understand the last part of it that's dico. We get our word dyke from it. And literally what it means, it means to wall around. You see, that's why the New Jerusalem is referred to as that walled city. It's a paradico. It's a paradise. And this is, this is what the promise is in the here and now for the person that has a heart hot for God. Here are more missiological implications. He says, to him who overcomes, to those who hold on and will not let go. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. Right in the midst of those hard times through which you are persevering and being faithful. He says, right where you are, I'm going to paradico. I'm going to draw a wall. I'll build a wall around you. And yes, you're going through tough times. But it's not going to hurt you. Because I've got you walled around on every side. And friend, you can be in the most trying circumstances of your life not knowing how it is you're going to survive because it's just so tumultuous, but yet for some reason the peace of God is ruling and reigning in your heart because God has drawn a circle around you. He's built a wall around you. He's pouring out life. He's allowing you to eat of the fruit of life right in the midst of hard times. And that's what He does for those who love Him. You remember what David said? David expressed it well for us when he said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk, uh, won't. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. For Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff they guide me. Listen, here it is. For Thou hast spread a table for me where? In the presence of my enemies. How is it that God can do that? Because God has the ability to take those who love Him and even in the midst of turmoil draw a paradico Around them. And even when you're going through things that would cause a normal human being to just crash psychologically, emotionally, and physically, and spiritually. You're in the midst of that paradise having a party. And people are looking at you saying, how are you doing it? What's going on? I don't understand. Why don't you just fall down, cuss God, and die? And you say, no, man, there's no way, because God's drawn a wall around me. I'm in the paradise of God, eating from the tree of life, in the presence of my enemies. He's taking care of me. And God uses that missiologically to lift the light and draw people to you and say, I don't know how you've done it. I can't explain it. But I want you to tell me what's going on in your world. You see, missiological implications everywhere and a given to the church that loves Him tenaciously finds their pleasure, their purpose, and His promises in the midst of the love of God. That's what God is doing at Michael Memorial Baptist Church. And I'm pleased to be associated with you. And I think Christ is just as pleased. And instead of saying, I don't want anybody to know you, man, He's putting your light higher on the lampstand of Michael Memorial saying, I'm going to call Moldova. I'm going to call Brazil. I'm going to call uh, the Navajo Indians. I'm going to call people to you, to myself, all around this world. Because you are the witness that I'm needing. You're the lampstand that I'm looking for to lift the glorious light of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it's just as relevant today as when it was written. Indeed, that demonstrates to us the eternal nature of God's word. It speaks right to where we are, no matter in what generation we live. And I thank you for these folks who are here demonstrating the good qualities of what you commended in Revelation chapter number 2 when you wrote to that church at Ephesus. But God, there are none of us that are safeguarded from falling into the same peril in which they fell. Lord, we're all prone to wonder. We're all prone to let busyness crowd out the first thing, and that is our devotion to you. So Lord, I pray for that one that's here tonight that, Lord, in the midst of looking at the mythological implications of this church, Spirit of God has spoken to them because they are part of the church. They have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. And you've just kind of revealed to them that, hey, this is why you've lost your energy. This is why there's no more pleasure in serving. This is why the promises of God aren't coming to fruition. This is why significance in my life in the grand scheme of things is waning. And Lord, Your Word to them never changes. It's just like it was to those original hearers down in Ephesus when You said remember and repent and return to the works that You did at first. So I thank you, God, for this church that is demonstrating, demonstrating the joy of having the light lifted high. But I also pray for those that need to heed your words tonight and come back to you. So in the quietness of this moment with Pastor Tony down front, there are those whom you've spoken to that need to heed your words in Jesus' name. Would you draw them to yourself in order that they could be restored to the way it was in the beginning and the light lifted even higher than it's ever been. God, bless these my brothers and my sisters as they obey you and as they fall more deeply in love with you day after day. And we pray it for your honor, for your glory, and for the sake of the light being elevated high. From Michael Memorial Baptist Church, amen and amen.